out tonight. Um, I'm Chris Garriott, if you're new. Um, I'm the campus minister here, and Josh Shaner back there in the back, he's the intern. Um, we would love to meet you, take you to lunch, coffee, uh, get to know your story. Um, the new intern that's coming, Valerie Meck, um, and her husband, Isaac, they're going to be coming to my house um, this weekend. And on Saturday evening around 6 o'clock, come on over. We'll probably have pizza. You can meet them and uh, hang out. And I'll post on the Facebook group about that. So we'd love to for you to meet them and start getting to know them. And they, she needs to raise money in order to be here. So um, we can pray for that. But um, uh, this semester, we're going through a little letter, First uh, Peter, uh, in the back of your Bibles. And Peter was one of the main disciples that was with Jesus. There was kind of three close disciples, Peter, James, and John, who were the closest inner circle with Jesus. A lot of the Gospels deal with Peter and his eyewitnesses' account of what happened with Jesus, his power, his miracles. Um, his taking the broken things in life and making them new by his power. And so as you think about the coronavirus that's going around, like continue to pray about that, um, that we wouldn't be people of fear, but just like the uh, song we just sang that said, it said that though the gates of hell uh, should rise up, we will not fear um, because God is with us. And so um Tonight, we're going to look at 1 Peter 3, 1 to 7. And this section is about wives and husbands. It's magnifying marriage. And it also is probably somewhat controversial if you've never been around the Bible much. Um, and so we'll get into that. Let me pray first and we'll read and hop in. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for tonight. Thank you for everyone that's here. I pray, God, that you would bless our time together. Uh, as we look at your word, that as a result of being here tonight, that you would uh, answer our prayers, that you would um, meet us where we need to be met with whatever things we're going through, anxieties, depression, doubt, um, just wondering who you are and what's going on in our lives. God, would you uh, be in our midst and would you change us and help us? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so before we read, in this section of Peter's letters, Peter is speaking about uh, a Christian's relationship with society. Um, he's talking about how we should be good citizens in, with the emperor, with the governor. He's talking about the relationship between um, employer and employee. Uh, and he's now talking about this close relationship of wives and husbands. And... He's specifically talking about in all of these relationships um, that the Christian is called to endure um, suffering and in, to endure injustice for a period, knowing that ultimately God is the one who justifies us and he vindicates the righteous. And he uses the example of Jesus, who was totally perfect, but endured suffering to the point of dying on the cross for, for sinful people in order to bring about their salvation. And so for the Christian, if you've come to know who Jesus is, the example of Jesus is also our example. Just as Jesus 
sacrificed and served and died for us, the life of the Christian as a pilgrim in this world is one of sacrifice and literally pouring out our lives for Jesus and ultimately death. But it leads to resurrection. Just as Jesus died and rose from the dead, his people will die, but we will not be defeated because Jesus has won the victory by his resurrection. And we will ultimately be risen with him. So, the, but, but the whole, this is, this is kind of a, this is hard stuff though, isn't it? Because oftentimes we hear, oh, if you believe in Jesus and you come to know who God is, everything's going to be great. Like you're just going to be, it's going to be fairways and greens. It's going to be going to the beach. It's going to be just beautiful life, making money, being blessed. Well, we live in a broken world and things like coronavirus are around and there's death and there's sickness. And, uh, but in the midst of all of that, um, we know that we have ultimate hope because God is going to make all things new. But our pattern for life is suffering and service and joy in the midst of that because we know Jesus. And so he's talking about specifically in relationships. That's the pattern as well. So here it is. Uh, here God's word. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. So that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adornment and pure and be external, the braiding of hair, the wearing of gold, or the putting on of clothing, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. Okay. Um, yes, this passage is probably counter to society's ideas about marriage and about uh, this relationship with a man and a woman. Um, this passage seems really hard for some of us, especially if we've grown up in families and homes where there's been abuse or where maybe your father um, was abusive or very hard on your mom. Um, maybe there's been a real authoritarian uh, kind of relationship, not loving, not cherishing. Maybe there's been emotional or physical or verbal uh, or sexual abuse. And sadly, there's, there's been men in the church who've used a passage like this to justify their behavior. That's completely wrong. That's completely missing the point. Um, because God has created marriage between a man and a woman to be a picture of his glorious church, a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ as the groom, as the bridegroom, who perfectly came to the earth, pursued his bride, 
loved her to the very end, sacrificed for her, wooed her, poured out his very blood and died for her to bring him, bring her to her, to himself. That marriage is, is the, the two main passages for marriage are right here in first Peter three, Ephesians five, and also in Genesis. These are like kind of the major sections. And so it's important that we think about marriage as this um, huge pattern, this mystery of God's love in Jesus Christ for his people, for the church and his sacrifice. But a lot of people, when they look at this passage, we hear the S word submission and they totally leave it. Like our culture will see that word and they'll just think that how much this has been abused in families and even in the church. And they'll kind of totally write it off. There's certain things in scriptures, Tim Keller calls them defeaters. And there are ideas like this, that like this, this issue of, uh, of submission and what this means in marriage, that when someone reads a passage like this, they'll just say, well, that's, that's the old days, that's antiquity, like you completely write it off. You know, An, another defeater would be something like to say that Jesus is the only way, truth, and life. You know, that... What Jesus is saying is he's the only way, like all other, he's saying, I'm God, I'm the only way to heaven. And when people hear that, they say like, that can't be right. There's no way that can be right. And they just like, don't even investigate it. So I'm, I'm here <laughs> trying to like say, be patient. Let's, let's look at what this says and let's think about this passage tonight. So, um, um, so I want to go back a little bit in Ephesians chapter five, that other passage, um, we have this idea that before the, Paul talks about husbands and wives, he says this, um, that there's this idea that, that we are to um, mutual, we, we should have mutual submission to one another in the Lord. And what he's saying is, is that Christians should be broken from their pride by the Holy Spirit to the point where they are mutually serving one another and laying down their lives for each other, that the husband is called to love and to cherish his wife to the very end as Christ loved and laid down his life for, for his bride, the church. Uh, and so at the same time, just as Christ is the head, the church is, is to submit to his leadership, his perfect, loving and good leadership. And Christ ultimately is committed in that relationship to the betterment of the church and so forth. The husband in the marriage relationship is committed to the betterment and to the sanctifying and the growth of his wife. And so it, to some extent, it's supposed to look beautiful. It's supposed to look like the perfect team. Um, Christ leads the church at, as its loving and sacrificing husband. He's not abusive. He's not a dictator. It's not male chauvinism. It's total sacrifice and love and humility. And he loves and cherishes his wife as his own body to bless and to help her be all the woman she is called to be before God. But in our flesh, we don't do this well. But this is the relationship that God has called us to and that he wants us to desire. And so what I'm going to talk about in this passage here really is just the power of a godly marriage. 
The power of a godly marriage shows the gospel to the world. That's the beauty of it. Some of you guys have been watching The Bachelor, right? Raise your hands. Come on. Come on. Yeah. So I even watch it a little bit here and there. But, you know, it's kind of interesting. Like I was, I was actually at the gym the other night, and they were down to three. You know, and uh, what's the guy's name? I don't even Peter. 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 Peter was waiting for the third girl to come or whatever. You know, there's three left. Madison. Okay. But what's it going to? It's going to Peter and one of those ladies, right? We don't know who it is. And everybody in the world is watching this show. And this show has been going on for years. I don't even know how many show, like, I don't know how many years, but why? Because we are fascinated with romance. We're fascinated with this idea of love, true love, forever and ever love. And most of these relationships, we all know, like, they don't last, do they? But there's something beautiful about it, like the guy literally committing himself, like to say, you're the one, right? And the, and the girl being the one to say, yes, I will, you know, I will love you and commit myself to you as well. Why? Ultimately goes back to this idea of this is how God has created us in his image way back in the garden. And Paul takes that idea and say, it's actually a picture of of Christ and his church. It's a mystery, he says in Ephesians 5. And so Peter is kind of giving another angle. And the first thing he starts with is what does it look like? What's, what does a gospel-centered wife look like? What's, if you're a Christian, what should you uh, attain to or aspire to? And ultimately what he's saying is you should be a humble follower uh, you should be one who follows his lead. You should be one who pursues godliness and holiness. And so as you look at this passage, he says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some of these men do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Again, in verse 6, there's that word, by submitting to their own husbands. So, no, um, this is not saying every woman is to be subject to every man. Okay? This does not mean that every woman out there should be subject to every man. What we see in the scriptures is an equality that both the man and the woman are made in the image of God. Okay, the man and the woman are equal heirs of Christ. It says at the, at the end of this passage that they are both uh, uh, heirs with you of the grace of life. That in Christ Jesus, there's neither rich or poor, slave or free, male or female. Paul says that in Galatians chapter 3, that there's this equality spiritually. At the same time, what we see in the Bible is that there's these roles of husband and wife, and there's a leader, and there's someone who follows. I didn't make this up. I'm giving you what the Bible says about this, but it says this in Ephesians. It says this in Colossians. It says this in 1 Peter, and it says this as the foundation in Genesis, as Adam was first created, and then Eve, the woman. Um, so 
part of what Paul is saying is, is that what it means to be subject is that you follow his lead. You give him respect. And he uses the example of Abraham and Sarah. How did Sarah do this? Well, she followed Abraham in the Old Testament when he received the call to leave Ur of the Chaldeans and follow God's command to go to this unknown place, the promised land. And uh, she didn't stay back and say, okay, Abraham, there's no way I'm going to go. But she's commended in the, in the scriptures um, for her faith because she followed and obeyed Abraham. Um, in her heart, she had to trust him and his leadership. She had to, lead, she had to have just as much faith to follow the Lord and to be a part of this big adventure. Um, it's, it reminds me of Ruth and Naomi in the book of Ruth, where Ruth says to Naomi, your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Sarah does a similar thing. She follows Abraham. Um, in the Bible as well, this does not mean um, that she never speaks up. There's this idea of like submission and quietness here. And you would think, well, is this meaning that like the woman never says anything or the, the woman never like, is part of like decisions? No, the woman is to be part of all the decision. She is to speak up and speak her mind. In fact, um, going back to Abraham and Sarah, um, we find uh, an interesting conversation in Genesis chapter 18. And, and if you know the, the history of that story, um, there was a lot of sin in their lives. They, they were trying to get the promise by themselves. And um, at one point, um, okay, in Genesis 18, we find out that Abraham had caused Sarah to, to sin by agreeing to call her his sister. He was unbelieving in this area because Sarah was beautiful and he thought that when he traveled to these new lands and met Pharaoh and the kings, he would be killed. Sarah would be taken. So he said, tell them you are my sister. It was a half-truth because she was the daughter of his father, but not his mother. But it was wrong, and he was not trusting God. And so in the process of this story, um, finally they have a child by the name of Isaac, who means laughter. And it came the time when um, Isaac was going to be circumcised, and the other child that Abraham had through Hagar was named Ishmael. Ishmael at this point was probably a teenager. And when they were circumcising Isaac, he mocked and laughed at Isaac. And Sarah was ticked off. And so she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son. For the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, do not be displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as he tells you. For though Isaac shall, for through Isaac your offspring shall be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also because he is your offspring. But here's what God is doing. Sarah is ticked off at this situation in her household because there's, there's a lack of peace and there's this other nation basically in her household because of uh, Ishmael and Hagar and because of Ishmael's sin. God tells Abraham, don't be displeased. 
displeased. Do whatever Sarah says for you to do. So here we have Sarah engaged in a, in a controversial issue. She's known as a woman of faith, but here she is um, plainly disagreeing with Abraham. And, Ab and God says, listen to her. Listen to her. This is what you should do. So this idea of submission and following the lead does not mean just verbatim. It never means follow, follow your husband into sin. It only means submit unto the Lord. Okay? So thinking about the husband and wife relationship, if the husband is a jerk, if the husband is telling you to do sinful things, you are never to follow him and do what he says to you. You are to follow the Lord. Okay? But at the same time, you are to follow his lead and seek to love him and endure uh, and submit to him as you do to the Lord, as a picture of faith to him. Um, secondly, he says uh, the, the wife should pursue inner godliness. Inner godliness leading to outward good works. The emphasis is this, that she should be concerned about her heart. And she should concern, be concerned about pursuing holiness. The verse says, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and putting on a gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. This is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves. So we're, so we're automatically in this culture which highlights you know, the outward, aren't we? Um, everything's about appearance. Everything's about clothing, style, jewelry. And th to some extent, what I want to say about this verse is he's not saying that she should not be concerned at all about her outward self because in that case, she wouldn't wear clothes either, okay? Because he says that would mean they wouldn't wear clothes. And so he doesn't say that. But he's saying that if... If jewelry and like this outward appearance is dominating your life, then that's probably an idol. And that you should spend time seeking the Lord and seeking um, the inner person, character, um, holiness, seeking to like understand what your idols are and repent and believe in Jesus, to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And so, this is what the holy women of old were commended for, their faith and their love, this um, imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. Again, this doesn't mean you don't say anything, but this means that you're, you're humbled by the Lord and you're, you're happy in God. And this is kind of setting the pace for your life and being, um, it, it's, it's all about like the fruit of the spirit in chapter five, uh, of Galatians where it says, but the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law that um, all of us are, are to pursue the gospel so that it changes our character. When we believe in Jesus, we ask him for the spirit and continue to repent. It makes us be filled with the Holy Spirit in order to emulate self-control and love and joy and peace, even when it's hard. And so 
This is what all of us, men and women, are to work on. Um, we're, and we do this by faith and repentance. We do this by saying, all these other idols have me. These are false saviors. Lord, forgive me for those. Let me be filled with you. Let me be filled with Jesus. Change me. So how do we do this? How do we change our, um, you know, our hearts? Well, we do that by reading the word. We do that by being in fellowship with other believers. We do that by going to church and worship and being reminded of the gospel day in and day out. Um, we do this by being in a small group and letting people into your life to like help you with your sins, help you to fight against temptation, right? It takes a village, it takes the church to do this. But, you know, we, we are called to like fight against sin. We're called to like change and to grow in sanctification. And we do that by faith and repentance and by the church and by others. And so this is what we're to be about. Um, and it's to lead to um, a purpose. The purpose is um, her holy lifestyle does something to her unbelieving husband. So, you know, Peter's writing this letter to the church that's spread out in modern day Turkey. And, you know, we would assume just like in Acts, we'll see Lydia becomes a believer, but maybe her husband didn't at that same time. She, he, she does, he does later. But basically the gospel is being preached. People are coming to faith, but not all of these relationships, both were believers. Paul, as well as Peter here, is not saying, oh, divorce your husband or wife because they're not a believer. No, no, no. Um, the, the marriage is actually sanctified by the one person, person being a believer. And so what the goal is then is to continue to love the unbelieving spouse and to show the unbelieving spouse the love of Christ and to continue to pour out deeds of love and service so that they will understand that like, wow, that you're so different. You're amazing. Like, what God do you believe in? That they would come and be one uh, to Christ. And so this is the goal. This is the purpose. Why? Uh, because everyone needs to hear this beautiful message of the gospel. So it says, even if some do not obey the word, he's saying that because some had not had unbelieving spouses, but by th this effort, by this um, showing the gospel and doing deeds of obedience, it's going to change people. It's going to have an effect uh, on people. And so bringing this home to like, um, this doesn't mean like date, like you should like, I would, if you're a believer, it doesn't, it doesn't mean like, oh, this is the okay to date an unbeliever. Let's be clear of that. It means you should be friends with lots of unbelievers. But like if you're going to be in a dating relationship where it might go to marriage, I would highly recommend that you don't get into that kind of relationship unless that person's a believer. Because that's what God is calling you to be, to have the same vision for life. Both people believing. You're going to have tons of problems down the road if you marry someone who's not a believer, if you're a believer. And God calls us not to be unequally yoked with an unbeliever in that kind of close relationship like marriage. So this isn't saying that. This is saying once you're married and then you become a Christian, what do you do? You pray and you seek to be holy in front of your husband or wife 
and pray for them and lovingly serve them so that they would see the fruit of the gospel in your life and want that. Okay. Um, okay. Uh, I know I'm kind of all over the place here. This is kind of a tough, tough passage. Um, okay. Secondly, the godly husband. Okay. Why does the wife have six verses and the husband only? Well, if you go to Ephesians 5, the husband gets all the verses. Okay. Um, but in verse 7, it says, here's what a godly husband looks like. Likewise, husbands live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so your prayers may not be hindered. So the role of the husband is to model and follow Christ's passionate love for his bride, the church. We've talked about that in the beginning. Um, he is not to be harsh. He is not to be a tyrant, but he is to love as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So um, this, uh, this idea of like in an understanding way is this idea of grace and humility and listening and being patient and bearing the fruit of the spirit in that relationship. Not being, you know, like angry, snapping back and all the things that relationships will do in your heart. But it's saying like, no, you have to like bear the burden and be understanding, um, show honor. Weaker vessel here is probably just the idea that typically, not everybody, but typically women are physically weaker. Okay. Um, I wouldn't say that to Ronda Rousey if you've ever been MMA, but um the, the issue here is that typically that's the idea, but um, it probably means too that in, in the marriage relationship, as Ephesians 5 says, that the husband should be about physical care for his wife. It says there that, uh, you know, he should love and cherish her as he does his own body because they're now one flesh. So that means like you're to feed her, protect her, treat her as his own flesh and blood, encourage her. There's this idea too here, the understanding way is this idea of um, spiritually speaking, that he might sanctify her and help her uh, grow in Christ. Ephesians 5 says that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. What does this mean? Sanctifying her by the word. It means that the husband, just like Christ came to the church and spoke the word of truth and saved us spiritually, that the husband's role is to love the wife, to speak the truth spiritually, to help sanctify her and cleanse her and make her all the woman of God she's meant to be. Likewise, the woman is to encourage uh, the husband in that relationship as well and to help him grow. Um, now, here's, here's what people find, though, a lot of times is like the, the male, the husband, oftentimes is not the spiritual leader in a relationship, that he's like doing his own thing. But like this is calling um, men specifically to pursue their wives for their own spiritual benefit and encouragement. And wife or girlfriend, if he's not doing that, 
you better like talk to him about doing that. Because again, you're gonna, if you're getting married, you're gonna have children and guess what? Both people are leaders. The husband and the wife are now leading this little mini church in their house. These kids that are gonna grow up, right? Those are, those are children in the covenant. And they're to lead them spiritually in the fear and admonition of the Lord. And so you start that in your dating relationship. You start that. And then when you get married, you're already doing it. You're already reading the Bible and praying together. And, and you're, you're praying for one another. And you're pouring out your heart to one another. And you're dealing with sin. And you're being reconciled when there's division. And you're asking forgiveness when you do the wrong thing. Like you're practicing this idea of sanctification. Marriage is called the furnace of sanctification because it's two sinners together for 20, 24-7, right? Seeing each other's sin. Like when you're alone, you're single and you're living in an apartment by yourself, like you see your sin every once in a while, but I guarantee you when you're in a relationship, it really comes out, okay? And that's a good thing because God is making this covenant relationship to put you together and you can't get out. It's like you're in this room and all the doors are locked. And you can fight it out and you can like argue. And the beauty of it is in the covenant, you're committed. And you're, you've said to each other in front of God, in front of your friends and family that I, I, I promise, you know, to love you and be committed to you till death do us part. That's the covenant of marriage. And so it, it gives you that rubber room to like battle it out and to grow. Okay, that's kind of a weird analogy, but that's really important a lot of people say, no, I don't need to be married. I don't need a piece of paper. I don't need, need a ring. We can just be together. No. What, what Peter is saying here, what Paul is saying here, what God is saying is, no, marriage is that one flesh covenant together. And that is what is going to help you grow in Christ um, when you're committed to one another. So the godly husband um, is called, and he can't do this on his own. He needs the Lord Jesus. Uh, he, he's going to see his weakness. Um, he's going to be tempted to dominate um, and, and to not, not do these things with understanding. And he needs to look to Christ, who is the one who um, loved the church and gave his very self for the church and died for her. Um, so this is a picture of the gospel when the woman is submitting and, and following the leadership and the husband is leading and is submitted to Christ and his love. And so when you see this, it's beautiful to the world. I always tell my couples when I do their, their wedding, um, their marriage counseling and at their wedding is that like your, your marriage is supposed to be a picture uh, to the world of the gospel. It's supposed to shine to the fact that love is real, that commitment is real, that look, the husband, as he loves his wife, it's like Christ loving his church and it's showing that to the world. And it's beautiful and it's building God's kingdom. The last thing, I'm going to go back to Abraham and Sarah. Um, it's interesting that Peter mentioned Sarah and Abraham's relationship. Like I said, she was, quite a, <laughs> she was quite a saint, but Abraham was quite a rascal. And if you, if you like go through Genesis chapter 12 to 22, where their story is, Abraham lied twice about Sarah being his sister whenever he was with a king or the Pharaoh. 
And why did he do that? Well, she was beautiful, and he felt if he went into this territory with Sarah, the king would kill him and take her as his wife. So he told Sarah back in the beginning of the relationship, listen, when we go to these places, I want you to tell them, you're my sister. You're my sister. He did this not once, but twice. And because of God's grace in the covenant, he brought him out of there. Um, but yeah, he did it in, in Egypt with Pharaoh, and he did it with his other, other king, Abimelech. Um, let me see. Uh, in, but, but here's the thing. Um, uh, gosh, where am I? But in the midst of like all of their sin, okay, and like Abraham's sin, um, God brings about his ultimate promise. And he brings Isaac into their life. She was 90 years old and Abraham was like 100. And at the same time, the Lord renamed her Sarah. She was named Sarai and she named her Sarah. And that name in the Hebrew means princess. Okay. And I thought that was really interesting because he also gives a promise that kings and queens will come out of her. The kings will come out of this line. So if you know the story, God makes his covenant with Abraham, promises him this child, and that out of them there's going to be kings that come. Um, so she ultimately becomes the queen of this line of kings, uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then the 12 tribes of Jacob. And then ultimately out of that line is the Lord Jesus Christ. And it was, it was really through her submission and her following Abraham and following the Lord, even when Abraham was a jerk and telling her to do stupid stuff like you're going to go and be with Pharaoh you're going to go and be with Abimelech and like we're going to like work this out like that. That's what like he was doing. He was like saying, you're my wife. I'm going to let you sleep with this guy just to protect my butt. And he is like our patriarch. OK, this shows the sin, the crazy sin, but yet. In the midst of that, God was bringing redemption. In the midst of that, God was bringing redemption. And that's the beautiful promise that through all of that, it, it's all about God's promises. His promises come through. Jesus comes through the line of Abraham and Sarah. And the point is, is that marriage and people are broken. Two sinners are coming together. But in God's grand design, in this marriage relationship, in this uh, the husband leading, the wife submitting in grace and in mercy, it shows the world salvation. And, uh, and so may it be for you if you get married. If not, if you're single, guess what? Your family's the church and you're just as beautiful and you have just as much um, of God's grace on you. Uh, let me pray. Lord, thank you so much uh, for this time to think about marriage and this issue of submission and leadership and what that looks like in this passage in First Peter. I know that it's kind of a tough passage. Um, Lord, let us, if we have questions, let us not just um, go home without asking more. So help us, give us wisdom. Um, Lord, help us in our relationships now uh, that we would be the kind of people you want us to be, that love you and love one another well. In Jesus' name, amen.